I want to talk to you for a few moments about how to be a standout church. How to be an outstanding church. Because I don't want to be a part of a church that's doing business as normal. I don't want to be a part of a church that just keeps on, like, just keeping the, 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 the medium. I want to go beyond the borders. I want to take, like the song said, take us deeper, right? Further than we can see into the deep waters. I want to experience the stuff. I'm crazy enough to believe that the very same stuff that happened in the, Old, in the Old Testament and the New Testament is available to all of us today. We can see miracles. We can see cities turned upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can happen. I believe that. And I believe that God is raising up a new standard. And if you're in this building, if you can hear the words that I'm saying, he's raising you up to be a part of that standard, to be a part of that generation that sees the greatest move of God that's been ever known to mankind. The stuff that happened back then was cool, but Jesus said to his disciples, greater works than these will you do. And so I want to talk about being an outstanding church and, and, uh, God's called us to be outstanding. He's called us to stand out. He's called us not to, to build a monument to ourselves, to build a museum where we look back on the good things that we did. He's called us to stand up and rise up and make a difference and make his name famous in this city. To make his name famous in our nation, in our world, so that many more may come to know his love Come to know his grace. Come to know his mercy, his faithfulness, his, his loving kindness. So in Luke chapter 7, there's a few verses that I want us to read and just meditate on this morning. That I believe that there's, there's something in there that God wants to speak to us about how we can be an outstanding church. The text, Luke 7 verse 11. Everyone say 7-11. <clears throat> Don't be thinking about the slurpee now. Come on. The text says, soon afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Soon afterward, when you read afterward, it means that there was things that happened before that. Before that, Jesus, in, in chapter 6, has, has, has just got done preaching about the Beatitudes. He's preached about judging others. He's told us to love our enemies. I mean, right there, that was a revolutionary thought because the, the Jews, they said, they're, they're like, why are we supposed to love our anim- enemies? I'm supposed to love people that I like. It's about loving those who don't love you back. Those that you have a problem with. As a matter of fact, the reason why you are to love your enemy is because the Bible tells us that we were objects of wrath, enemies of God, yet great in his love, he loved us. Love our enemies. He's taught the Beatitudes. He's healed the man with the withered hand. He's called his disciples. He's, he's cleansed the lepers. He's healed the paralytic. He's told them that when it comes to Sabbath keeping, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who lords over everything. And so in, Je- in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, he says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And Trick Daddy, a great theologian of the 90s, <laughs> said these words, You don't know Nain. He didn't know he was quoting scripture. <laughs> Where is Nain? Nain is, this is the only time in scripture that Nain is ever mentioned. 
There are other places that are mentioned throughout Scripture that, that deserve mention. Bethlehem. We've heard of Bethlehem in the Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years before this happens, Bethlehem was there. Uh, in the book of Ruth, you discover Bethlehem. You know about Jerusalem. David would sing about Jerusalem. He'd speak about Zion and all those other places. Nazareth is significant because Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. But we don't know Nain. We don't know Nain. Nain is insignificant. Jesus has not, has not been invited to come to Nain. No one has said, let's go find Jesus and ask him to come to our town. Nain is an insignificant, it's 25 miles out of the way. When people are thinking of Capernaum or Galilee, they're thinking of those, those, those great towns and those towns of great reputation. But Nain, why would Jesus go to Nain? If Barack Obama was to come to Southern California, he would not go to Hemet. <laughs> Los Angeles, yes. Orange County, absolutely. Maybe he might go up to Big Bear to get away in a, in a cabin somewhere, right? But he won't go down to Moreno Valley. There's nothing in Riverside that's significant. Maybe a night stay at the Mission Inn, but he's a new president. He's not doing what the old presidents did. Come on now. Point number one of my message this morning, how to be an outstanding church, we need to be able to go there. Jesus goes to Nain. He goes to the places that other people may not think to go to. And I'd like to submit to you this morning that there is a name in Riverside. There is a name in Corona. There is a name in Grand Terrace. There is a name in Moreno Valley. There is a name in Loma Linda, a place where others have not gone yet to make the gospel take root in that place. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your school. It's at your workplace. There is a name there. And Jesus is saying, you need to go to name because you don't know name. It says that his disciples and a great crowd went with him. He goes into the town, but there's this, great, there's this great congregation of people that have gathered, that have pressed up close to him, and the disciples are close to him. There's a great crowd that's following them because they're in anticipation of what's Jesus going to say next? What is he going to do next? What's going to be the next miracle? Who's the next withered hand that's going to be stretched out? Who's the next person who's a paralytic, who's never walked a day in their life, that's going to take up their mat and walk again? Who's the next person? Who's the next person that Jesus is going to diss? Oh, yeah, Jesus used to diss people. Mm -hmm. I know you've heard about the Barney Jesus, that Jesus says, I love you, I'll, that, that Jesus. But there's a Jesus that used to, he had another side to him, you know. You came up to Jesus with your religion and your rules and your legalism, and Jesus would be like, you don't know name. Mm -mm. So they're like, what's he going to say next? What's going to happen next? Point number two about how to become an outstanding church, a church filled with outstanding believers, believers who are really on the go mission, who are walking with Jesus, who are, who are living for Jesus, who are talking about Jesus. We need to be a people, point number two, we need to be a people that's willing to go with Jesus. We're going to go to Nain, but we're going to go with Jesus. We're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to be close up where the action is. These people are walking in anticipation. What's going to happen next? I am sick and tired of a Christianity. That's just normal. A Christianity that never gets to see the good stuff. 
A Christianity that never really, really sees the miracles of, of, of the ruins coming to life. A Christianity that just kind of does the, the Christian adjective thing. I listen to Christian rock. I have a Christian shoe. I have a Christian shirt. I go to a Christian school. I do a Christian thing. I'm tired of adjective Christianity. I'm looking for experiential Christianity where, where it really means that I'm walking with Jesus. And, and when people see me, they're seeing a dude that's on the job training that's shadowing Jesus in everything that he says and does. Thank you, Beth Adami. Have you ever thought about your walk with Jesus being a walk where you're literally shadowing him? So that the things that he does, you get to do. The things that he says, you get to say. So that just like we learned in John chapter 5 when he said, the son does nothing more than what the father tells him to do, becomes your testimony also. I know the stuff that you do, Aaron. You make babies. <laughs> and grow the church. Amen. Praise the Lord. Those who are closest to you know the things that you do. They know your personality. They know your characteristics. They know your, 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 your qualms and all the little things that make who you are. But do they know you in the context of he's on the job training with Jesus right now? That's why that's happening in his life. We need to be a people that walks with Jesus close to him. It says, as he drew near, verse 12, to the gate of the town, behold. Everyone say, behold. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. They're walking in expectation. They're walking in a, with a man who's bringing people whose hopes were dashed, whose, whose dreams had been, had been come to disaster. He's, they're walking with this guy, and they're like, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen next? What's happening next? And it's an encouraging, it's a, it's a celebratory crowd. But yet, on the other hand, there's this other crowd that's filled with sorrow that's walking to a funeral, walking in death, traveling with mourning on their hearts. One group is, praise the Lord, this is awesome, I love Jesus, I'm closer to Jesus than you are, I'm going to be on the right hand of Jesus, you're going to be on the left. They're, they're like doing the Jesus thing, but the other side is just kind of like, life sucks. It says that this woman had buried her, father, her, her husband, and now she was burying her son. In this context, what normally would take place is that, is that a woman uh, who's widowed and has no offspring is literally uh, destined to a life of poverty, a life of, of being sold into slavery, becoming uh, a, a property of someone else. And so her hopes are dead with her son. She is in mourning. One group is walking in anticipation. The other group is walking in frustration. One group is walking in celebration. The other group is walking in sorrow. But behold, I love it when the Bible says behold. Because behold means that some, there's a shift taking place here. And, and you've seen this type of behold before. You, you saw it when, when, when uh, uh, Moses' uh, mother had, 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 had to give up Moses and put him in the river Nile to, to give him up and, and, and wonder what his destiny would be. But behold, Pharaoh's daughter was right there to pick him up. Amen. You've seen this behold before when, when, when uh, Abraham was about to sacrifice his son. But behold, 
God held his hand back. You saw it in Ruth. When Ruth and Naomi are, are, are working in the fields, and, and it just says that, behold, it was Boaz who was there. You never see coincidences with God. There's no such thing as luck with God. There's no such thing as it just so happened I was in the right place at the right time and it happened. No, it's called providence. It's called God's sovereignty arranging the times and places so that you can have an encounter. You're walking in units of life, but there's a cross-section taking place in that people who are experiencing death are meant to be encountered by those who've experienced life. It says that when he saw her, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Point number three about becoming an outstanding church. We need to have compassion that leads to action. Not pity. Compassion. Because compassion is when you see an issue, you, you see a problem, you see someone hurting, and you don't join the crowd that's just saying, man, sucks to be you. I'll pray for you, and you go on doing the life as normal. Compassion is, is something that says, that's horrible. Let's work it out. I know there's a solution. I know there's a better uh, hope. There's a future for this. You, you don't have to live in the same place anymore. Point number four, to be an outstanding church, we need to listen to Jesus. Jesus has compassion, and he says to her, do not weep. Now, if I was there, this would have been a moment for me to help save Jesus. Because sometimes Jesus needs to be saved. People say the dumbest things at funerals. Like the dumb. The casket is, lay, is right there. It's an open casket. They've done all the makeup. And they walk over. And they turn to the the widow or the, the family that's left behind, and they say, he looks so natural. <laughs> he looks dead. It's not natural. Jesus is seeing this woman walking in mourning and sorrow. She's lost everything, and he says, do not weep. No, no, Jesus, don't say do not weep. Ah, you're ruining it for all of us. Foot in the mouth, Jesus. What you should say in a moment like that is, I'm so sorry, my deepest condolences. Accept your new reality. As a matter of fact, Jesus, let's turn around and walk with them to the funeral so we can be there for them. Jesus says, do not weep. Because the message that we carry in this world is a message that doesn't look at the facts but believes the reality of God. 
over the facts. Yes, your marriage may be going down the gutter. Yes, you may be trapped in a situation where there's addiction of all kinds, drug addiction, uh, self-addiction, porn, whatever it is. Yes, you may have finances that are really, really in the gutter. Yes, you may have all these relational issues that are holding you back. And yes, you came from a bad marriage, a bad home. You came from a bad neighborhood. Everything's bad. It's all bad, Mr. Williams. It's all bad. But we have a message that says, greater is he that is in us than that is in the world. We have a message that says that we have a hope and a future. We have a message that says he came to give us life and life to the full. Do not weep. Do not accept this. We have the gospel. We have the good news. We sing about it. The ruins come to life. There's a scandal of grace that says dead people can come to life. He's with us. He's faithful. Troubles don't last always. He says, do not weep. Verse 14, it gets a little interesting because right here, um, Jesus is about to do what Jesus does best. This religion. It says that he, he came up and touched the beer, which is a, 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 it's not a coffin. It can be translated as coffin, but it's not really a coffin. It's more of like a body bag. Back then, if you were poor, you, you didn't get a coffin. It's just a, a, a device that they used to carry the dead. If someone died, they would bury them that same day. And so they had this thing called the beer, and he comes up to this, we'll call it a coffin, and he, and he touches the coffin. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the entire law had told them that if you touch a dead carcass or anything that has touched a dead thing, you become ceremonially unclean. Religion tells you that if you even hang out with people who look bad, who talk bad, who speak bad, who do bad things, then you might, it might jump on you. You need to have a standard, Dustin. We, we need to have a... Uh, you cannot be involved in the arts. The arts are dirty. Hollywood is bad. And I saw you on that episode of, of that show where the kids are singing. I can't remember, remember the title of it. Glee, you are dancing and you are, do, you are dancing. You know what dancing leads to? <laughs> leads to babies. Ask the overturfs. You can't be involved with those things. There's so much filth that comes from there, Dustin. You, you, you've heard people say this. Oh, I hate going to my workplace because they always, they're always saying the F word. That's my boss always says that, and I just, I need to find another job. Because it's better that the light of God escapes the dark places. That's the theology that some people, come on, most of us have been taught. We don't smoke or chew or go with people that do. First Corinthians 328. We're adding verses, you know. Jesus came up and he touched the coffin. 
And it says that the pallbearers stood still. What happened there is that they literally were like, Rabbi, what have you done? Peter's like, oh, crap. He cussed. That was Peter. What did Jesus just do? There goes our career as disciples. Everyone's going to know that he's ceremonially unclean. He stops and he touches the coffin. I want to submit to you that every week that you are alive in Riverside or the Inland Empire, wherever it is that you are in San Diego, in San Bernardino, in Los Angeles, wherever it is that you work, your, your workplaces are, you're running into people who are walking towards their death and you're touching their coffin or sometimes you're letting their coffins pass you by. But it says that Jesus stopped and he touched their coffin, touched them in their sin, touched them in their destruction, touched them in their death. I'm so glad that Jesus stopped a few years ago for my coffin. I'm so glad that he, that he took time out of uh, his busy schedule taking care of the universe and, and saving nice, shiny, happy people and bringing them into the kingdom. That he looked and he found dirty old Jonathan Belima who was trapped in his sin, trapped in his disgust, trapped in his nasty, completely an enemy of God, thinking better of himself than he really was, religious in all things, But he stopped and he said, I want you. You're mine. He touched my coffin. Point number five. We need to be a people that are willing to stop and touch the coffin. Stop and touch the coffin. Not stop and judge the coffin. Not stop and try to paint the coffin. To make it a pretty coffin. They're still dead, but you try to make it pretty by adding your rules and your religion. Not to stop and and instruct the coffin. When you get your life right, maybe you should come and be a part of us. But we stop and we touch the coffin from a heart that's like Jesus, a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion. It says that he said to the young man, young man, I say to you, arise. Again, Jonathan Belima, disciple number 3082. Like, you told her not to weep. Now you're saying some wild stuff. This is crazy. But it's also verses like this that have made me a little crazy. Every time I'm at a little funeral, if I'm officiating, I, I, I do the crazy thing. I, I don't... People don't know I'm doing it, but as I'm walking by the casket, I'm going all, all kinds of Pentecostal charismatic. We're gathered here today. Wake up! Hoping that there'll be one day that... <laughs> Get up! I need to start a TV ministry. Get up! (laughs) Point number six about becoming an outstanding church. We need to be a people that are willing to declare the impossible. To declare the impossible to our nation. 
to declare the impossible to our city, to our neighborhoods, that yet you may say that it's headed this way, but the Lord says that there is a new standard that he's raising up. There is a people that's willing to be crazy enough to believe that they can be used to turn this city upside down, to change the culture of Southern California. It could be known that Southern California is a place where the wellsprings of salvation are pouring out throughout all the world. Amen? It could be that way. We need to be willing to declare the impossible. Verse 15 says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. I don't know what he said, but I know what just happened right there. Disciple 3082, Jonathan Belima, has just become ghost, no pun intended. At first he was like, Jesus, don't say that. Jesus, I need to save you. Jesus, what would Jesus do? And then the dead man wakes up. Belima is like three miles away yelling back, what happened? (laughs) Says the man got up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized them all, holy awe. And they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Less than six weeks away from Easter. Every Sunday that we gather, we're celebrating a mini Easter. The Christian method message is about what just took place there. If you went to seminary and got an advanced degree, a master's in divinity, a doctorate in theology, doctorate in ministry, if you learned the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and, and studied the history of the people and, and understood the culture and understood the context of what's taking place in this text, what you'd come to is this simple truth. When a dead man wakes up, the funeral is over. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to a world that hated him. A world that was trapped in darkness. He sent his perfect son who walked on this earth perfectly, who talked perfectly, who perfectly taught the kingdom of God, who came to give us the picture of what perfect relationship is like, not perfect religion. He destroyed perfect religion. He wasn't looking for perfect people because he knew that people can't be perfect. He had to come and be perfect for them. And he went on that bloody cross And took our sin, took our nakedness, took our disease, took our shame, took our backbiting, took our pride, took our selfishness, took our whatever it is that you can fill in the blank. He took it upon himself and he died. And at that moment, the devil thought he had a victory of sorts. He thought that he had won a a victory. He probably mocked God and said, God, you thought you could save these people, but look where your son is now. He is sealed. They're Roman soldiers guarding that, that grave. He won't come back up, and maybe it was Saturday afternoon, and they're preparing for the party in hell. 
But early Sunday morning, I'm sure he got the memo. When the earthquake took place, when, when the grave rolled away, when the stone rolled away, he heard the memo that God had woken up. He had re- taken his life back up. He resurrected. And when he resurrected, he said, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? I have overcome. And because I have overcome, you overcome. The funeral is over. That is our message. When we see people who are walking in death, who are mourning something they shouldn't be mourning anymore, we have the, the, the right, we have the a commission to tell them the funeral is over. Come and experience new life. We become an outstanding church when we really, really grab a hold of that. Let it immerse our spirit, our soul, our every being. When we start going to Nain, as we're job shadowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, as we start developing hearts of compassion, hearts that are willing to believe and listen to what Jesus says and not try to edit the Bible, when we begin to declare the impossible, We, become, we begin to become a people who aren't accountants, teachers, actors, dancers, mothers, fathers, doctors, lawyers, whatever it is that you do. We're funeral cancelers. The funeral is over. This Easter... I want you to start preparing your hearts. Start preparing your your prayer life. Start thinking about who is God constantly putting in the cross section with. As you're walking in units of life, who is passing you by? Booty Brown, Farside. They keep on passing me by. Who is it that God has in his providence placed you in their life so you can stop and touch their coffin and say to them, arise, the funeral is over. Let us pray. God, you've spoken to our hearts. that you let this message go deep in our spirit Lord may we run with this God there may be some here today who who come to this place and, and they're walking in death but this morning you're stopping and you're touching their coffin and you're saying to them Arise, a new person, so you can speak new things. Speak praises of what God has done. And through your miracle, through your resurrected life of of becoming a Christian, others all around you, the crowd that was in your funeral procession, begin to see what took place in your life and begin to glorify God also. 
If that person is you, this is your moment to respond and say, Lord, I give you my life. I believe in your life, your death, and your resurrection. Thank you for canceling my funeral. We thank you, God.